February's audiobooks are brought to you by Copper Cow Coffee. All February long, we will be doing astounding tales of super science all February long. And if you like it, we'll do it all year long. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you have a great February. And if you're listening to this in the future, I hope you had a great February. All right. Here we go. Astounding stories. Copper Cow Coffee. Link in the show notes. Astounding Stories, January 1930, Part 7. Phantoms of Reality, Chapter 4. Hope I Came. I think I was first conscious of a queer calmness which had settled upon me, as though now I had withdrawn contact with the turmoil of our world. Something was gone, and in its place came a calmness. But that was a mere transition. It had passed in a moment. I stood trembling with eagerness, as I know Derek was trembling. A radiant effulgence of light was around us, clarifying, growing. There was a ground beneath our feet and sky overhead. A rational landscape, strangely familiar. A physical world like my own, but, it seemed, with a new glory upon it. Nature, calmly serene. I had thought we were standing in daylight. I saw now it was bright starlight. An evening such as the evening we had just left in our own world. The starlight showed everything clearly. I could see a fair distance. We stood at the top of a slight rise. I saw gentle, slightly undulating country. A brook nearby wound through a grove of trees and lost itself. Suddenly, with a shock, I realized how familiar this was. We stood facing what in New York City we call West. The contour of this land was familiar enough for me to identify it. A mile or so ahead lay a river. It shimmered in its valley, with cliffs on its further side. Near at hand, the open country was dotted with trees and checkered with round patches of cultivated fields. And there were occasional habitations, low oval houses of green thatch. The faint flush of a recent sunset lay upon the landscape, mingled with the starlight. A road, a white ribbon in the starlight, wound over the countryside toward the river. Animals, strange of aspect, were slowly dragging carts. There were distant figures working in the fields. A city lay ahead of us, set along this nearer bank of the river. A city, it seemed a primitive village. All was primitive, as though here might be some lost Indian tribe of our early ages. The people were picturesque, the field workers garbed in vivid colors. The flat little carts, slow moving, with broad horned oxen. The quiet village, drowsing beside the calm flowing river, seemed all very normal. I could fancy that it was just after sundown of a quiet workday. There was a quiet flush of pink upon everything. The glory of the sun just set. And, as though to further my fancy, in the village by the river, like an angelus, a faint-toned bell was chiming. We stood for a moment gazing silently. I felt wholly normal. A warm, pleasant wind fanned my hot face. The sense of lightness was gone. This was normality to me. 
Derek murmured. Hope was to meet me here. And then we both saw her. She was coming toward us along the road. A slight, girlish figure, clothed in queerly vivid garments. A short jacket of blue cloth, with wide flowing sleeves. Knee-length pantaloons of red, with tassels dangling from them. And a wide red sash about her waist. Pale golden hair was piled in a coil upon her head. She was coming toward us along the edge of the road, from the direction of the city. She was only a few hundred feet from us when we first saw her, coming swiftly, furtively it seemed. A low pike fence bordered the road. She seemed to be shielding herself in the shadows beside it. We stood waiting in the starlight. The nearest figures in the field and on the road were too far away to notice us. The girl advanced. Her white arm went up in a gesture, and Derek answered. She left the road, crossing the field toward us. As she came closer, I saw how very beautiful she was. A girl of eighteen, perhaps, a fantastic little figure with her vivid garments. The starlight illumined her white face, anxious, apprehensive, but eager. Derek, he said, Hope, I came. I stood silently watching. Derek's arms went out, and the girl, with a little cry, came running forward and threw herself into them. Chapter 5 Intrigue Am I in time, Hope? Yes, but the festival is tonight. In an hour or two now. Oh, Derek, if the king holds this festival, the toilers will revolt. They won't stand it. Tonight? It mustn't be held tonight. It doesn't give me time, time to plan. I stood listening to their vehement, half-whispered words. For a moment or two, absorbed, they ignored me. The king will make his choice tonight, Derek. He has announced it. Blanca or Sensua for his queen. And if he chooses the crimson Sensua... She stammered, then she went on. If he does, there will be bloodshed. The toilers are waiting just to learn his choice. Derek exclaimed. But tonight is too soon. I've got to plan. Hope, where does Robar stand in this? Strange intrigue. I pieced it together now, from their words, and from what presently they briefly told me. A festival was about to be held, an orgy of feasting and merrymaking, of music and dancing. And during it, this young King Leonto was to choose his queen. There were two possibilities. The crimson Sensua, a profligate, debauched woman, who, as queen, would further oppress the workers. And Blanca, a white beauty, risen from the toilers to be a favorite at the court. Hope was her handmaiden. If Blanca were chosen, the toilers would be appeased. She was one of them. She would lead this king from his profligate ways, would win from him justice for the workers. But Derek and Hope both knew that the pure and gentle Blanca would never be the king's choice. And tonight the toilers would definitely know it, and the smoldering revolt would burst into flame. And there was this Robar. Derek said, 
He is the king's henchman, Charlie. I stood here in the starlight listening to them. This strange, primitive realm. There were no modern weapons here. We had brought none. The current used in our transition would have exploded the cartridges of a revolver. I had a dirk which Hope now gave me, and that was all. Primitive intrigue. I envisaged this chaotic nation, with its toilers ignorant as the oppressed Mexican peons at their worst, striving to better themselves, yet not knowing how, ready to shout for any leader who might, with vainglorious words, set himself up as a patriot. This Robar, perhaps, was planning to do just that. And so was Derek. He said, Hope, if you could persuade the king to postpone the festival, if Blanca would help persuade him, just until tomorrow night. I can try, Derek, but the festival's planned for an hour or two from now. Where is the king? In his palace, near the festival gardens. She gestured to the south. My mind went back to New York City. This hillock, where we were standing in the starlight beside a tree, was, in my world, about Fifth Avenue and Sixteenth Street. The King's Palace, the Festival Gardens, stood down at the Battery, where the rivers met in the broad water of the harbor. Derek was saying, We haven't much time. Can you get us to the palace? Yes, I have a cart down there on the road. And cloaks for Charlie and me? Yes. Good, said Derek. We'll go with you. It's a long chance. He probably won't postpone it. If he does not, we'll be among the audience. And when he chooses the Red Sensua... She shuddered. Oh, Derek! And I thought I heard her whisper, Oh, Alexander! And I saw his finger go to his lips. His arm went around her. She huddled, small as a child against his tall, muscular body. He said gently, Don't be afraid, little Hope. His face was grim, his eyes were gleaming. I saw him suddenly as an instinctive military adventurer, an anachronism in our modern New York City, born in a wrong age. But here, in this primitive realm, he was at home. I plucked at him. How can you, how can we dare plunge into this thing? Hidden with cloaks, yes, but you talk of leading these toilers. He cast hope away and confronted me. I can do it. You'll see, Charlie. He was very strangely smiling. You'll see, but I don't want to come into the open right away. Not tonight. But if we can only postpone this accursed festival... We had been talking perhaps five minutes. We were ready now to start away. Derek said, Whatever comes, Charlie, I want you to take care of Hope. Guard her for me, will you? I said, Yes, I will try to. Hope smiled as she held out her hand to me. I will not be afraid with Derek's friend. Her English was of different intonation from our own but it was her native language I could not doubt. I took her cold, slightly trembling hand. Thank you, Hope. Her eyes were misty with starlight. Tender eyes, but the tenderness was not for me. Yes, I repeated. You can depend upon me, Derek. 
we left the hillock. A food-laden cart came along the road. The driver, a boy vivid in jacket and wide trousers of red and blue, bravely worn but tattered, ran alongside guiding the oxen. When they had passed, we followed, and presently we came to the cloaks Hope had hidden. Derek and I donned them. They were long, crimson cloaks with hoods. Hope said, Many are gathering for the festival shrouded like that. You will not be noticed now. Further along the road, we reached a little eminence. I saw the river ahead of us, and a river behind us, and a few miles to the south, an open spread of water where the rivers joined. Familiar contours. The Hudson River, the East River, and down at the end of the island, New York Harbor. Hope gestured that way. The King's Palace is there. We were soon passing occasional houses, primitive thatched dwellings. I saw inside one. Workers were seated over their frugal evening meal. Always the same vivid garments, jaunty but tattered. We passed one old fellow in a field, working late in the starlight. A man bent with age, but still a tiller of the soil. Hope waved to him, and he responded, but the look he gave us as we hurried by, shrouded in our crimson cloaks, was sullenly hostile. We came to an open cart. It stood by the roadside. An ox with shaggy coat and spreading horns was fastened to the fence. It was a small cart with small rollers like wheels. Seats were in it and a vivid canopy over it. We climbed in and rumbled away. And this starlit road in our own world was Broadway. We were presently passing close to the river's edge. This quiet, peaceful, starlit river. Why, in our world, it was massed with docks. Great ocean liners, huge funneled, with storied decks lay here. Under this river, tunnels with endless passing vehicles. Tubes with speeding trains crowded with people. The reality here was so different. Behind us, what seemed an upper city was strung along the river. Ahead of us, also, there were streets and houses, the city of the workers. A bell was tolling. Along all the roads now, we could see the moving yellow spots of lights on the holiday carts headed for the festival, and there were spots of yellow torchlight from boats on the river. We soon were entering the city streets. Narrow dirt streets they were, with primitive shacks to the sides. Women came to the doorways to stare at our little cart rumbling hastily past. I was conscious of my crimson cloak, and conscious of the sullen glances of hate which were flung at it from every side, here in this squalid, forlorn section where the workers lived. Along every street now the carts were passing, converging to the south. They were filled, most of them, with young men and girls, all in gaudy costumes. Some of them, like ourselves, were shrouded in crimson cloaks. The carts occasionally were piled with flowers. As one larger than us and moving faster rumbled by, a girl in it stood up and pelted me with blossoms. She wore a crimson robe, but it had fallen from her shoulders. I caught a glimpse of her face, framed in flowing dark hair, and of eyes with laughter in them, mocking me, alluring. We came at last to the end of the island. 
there seemed to be a thousand or more people arriving or here already. The tip of the island had an esplanade with a broad canopy behind it. Burning torches of wood gave flames of yellow, red and blue fire. A throng of gay young people promenaded the walk, watching the arriving boats. And here, behind the walk at the water's edge, was a garden of trees and lawn, shrubs and beds of tall, vivid flowers. Nooks were here to shelter lovers. Pools of water glinted red and green with the reflected torchlight. In one of the pools I saw a group of girls bathing, sportive as dolphins. To one side, at a little distance up the river, banked against the water, was a broad, low building, the Palace of the King. About it were broad gardens with shrubs and flowers. The whole was surrounded by a high metal fence spiked on top. The main gate was near at hand. We left our cart. Close to the gate was a guard standing alert, a jaunty fellow in leather pantaloons and leather jacket, with a spiked helmet and in his hand a huge, sharp-pointed lance. The gardens of the palace, what we could see of them, seemed empty. None but the favored few might enter here. But as I climbed from the cart, I got the impression that just inside the fence a figure was lurking. It started away as we approached the gate. The guard had not seen it, the drab figure of a man in what seemed to be dripping garments, as though perhaps he had swum in from the water. And Derek saw him. He muttered, They are everywhere. Hope led us to the gate. The guard recognized her. At her imperious gesture, he stood aside. We passed within. I saw the palace now as a long winged structure of timber and stone, with a high tower at the end of one wing. The building fronted the river, but here on the garden side there was a broad doorway up an incline, twenty feet up and over a small bridge, spanning what seemed a dry moat. Beyond it, a small platform, then an oval archway, the main entrance to the building. Derek and I, shrouded in our crimson cloaks with hoods covering us to the eyes, followed Hope into the palace. Chapter 6 The King's Henchman The long room was bathed in colored lights. There was an ornate tiled floor. Barbaric draperies of heavy fabric shrouded the archways and windows. It was a totally barbaric apartment. It might have been the audience chamber of some fabled eastern prince of our early ages. Yet not quite that either. There was a primitive modernity here. I could not define it, could not tell why I felt this strangeness. Perhaps it was the aspect of the people. The room was crowded with men and gay laughing girls in fancy dress costumes. Half of them, at least, were shrouded in crimson cloaks, but most of the hoods were back. They moved about, laughing and talking, evidently waiting for the time to come for them to go to the festival. We pushed our way through them. Derek murmured, Keep your hood up, Charlie. A girl plucked at me. Handsome man, let me see. She thrust her painted lips up to mine as though daring me to kiss them. Hope shoved her away. 
Her parted cloak showed her white, beautiful body with the dark tresses of her hair shrouding it. Exotically lovely she was, with primitive, unrestrained passions, typical of the land in which she lived. "'This way,' whispered Hope. "'Keep close together. Do not speak.' We moved forward and stood quietly against the wall of the room, where great curtains hid us partly from view. Under a canopy, at a table on a raised platform near one end of the apartment, sat the youthful monarch. I saw him as a man of perhaps thirty. He was in holiday garb, robed in silken hose of red and white, a strangely fashioned doublet, and a close-fitting shirt. Bare-headed, with thick black hair, long to the base of his neck. He sat at the table with a calm dignity, but he relaxed here in the presence of his favored courtiers. He was evidently in a high good humor this night, giving directions for the staging of the spectacle, dispatching messengers. I stood gazing at him. A very kingly fellow, this. There was about him that strange mingled look of barbarism and modernity. Hope approached him and knelt. Derek and I could hear their voices, although the babble of the crowd went on. My little Hope, what is it? Stand up, child, she said. Your Highness, a message from Blanca. He laughed. Say no more. I know it already. She does not want this festival. The workers. What a world of sardonic contempt he put into that one word. The workers will be offended because we take pleasure tonight. Bah! But he was still laughing. Say no more, little Hope. Tell Blanca to dance and sing her best this night. I am making my choice. Did you know that? Hope was silent. He repeated, Did you know that? Yes, your highness, she murmured. I choose our queen tonight, child. Blanca or Sensua? He sighed. Both are very beautiful. Do you know which one I am going to choose? No, she said. Nor do I, little Hope. Nor do I. He dismissed her. Go now. Don't bother me. She parted her lips as though to make another protest, but his eyes suddenly flashed. I would not have you annoy me again. Do you understand? She turned away, back toward where Derek and I were lurking. The chattering crowd in the room had paid no attention to Hope, but before she could reach us, a man detached himself from a nearby group and accosted her. A commanding figure he was, I think, quite the largest man in the room, an inch or two taller than Derek at the least. He wore his red cloak with the hood thrown back upon his wide, heavy shoulders a bullet head with close-clipped black hair. A man of about the king's age, he had a face of heavy features and flashing dark eyes. A scoundrel adventurer, this king's henchman. Hope said, What is it, Robar? You will join our party, little Hope? He laid a heavy hand on her white arm. His face was turned toward me. I could not miss the gleaming look in his eyes as he regarded her. No, she said. It seemed that he twitched at her, 
but she broke away from him. Anger crossed his face, but the desirous look in his eyes remained. You are very bold, Hope, to spurn me like this. He had lowered his voice as though fearful that the king might hear him. Let me alone, she said. She darted away from him, but before she joined us, she stood waiting until he turned away. No use, Hope whispered. There is nothing we can do here. You heard what the king said, and the festival has already begun. Derek stood for a moment, lost in thought. He was gazing across the room to where Robar was standing with a group of girls. He said at last, Come on, Charlie, we'll watch this festival. This damn fool king will choose the Red Sensua. He shrugged. There will be chaos. We shoved our way from the room, went out of the main doorway, and hurried through the gardens of the palace. The red-cloaked figures were leaving the building now for the festival grounds. We waited for a group of them to pass so that we might walk alone. As we neared the gate, passing through the shadows of the high-flowered shrubs, a vague feeling that we were being followed shot through me. In a moment there was so much to see that I forgot it, but I held my hand on my dirk and moved closer to Hope. We reached the entrance to the canopy. A group of girls, red-cloaked, were just coming out. They rushed past us. They ran, discarding their cloaks. Their white bodies gleamed under the colored lights as they rushed to the pool and dove. We were just in time. Hope whispered, The king will be here any moment. Beneath the canopy was a broad arena of seats. A platform, like a stage, was at one end. It was brilliantly illuminated with colored torches held aloft by girls in flowing robes, each standing like a statue with her light held high. The place was crowded. In the gloom of the darkened auditorium, we found seats off to one side, near the open edge of the canopy. We sat with hope between us. Derek whispered, Shakespeare might have staged a play in a fashion like this. A primitive theatrical performance. There was no curtain for interlude between what might have been the acts of a vaudeville. The torch girls, like pages, ranged themselves in a line across the front of the stage. They were standing there as we took our seats. The vivid glare of their torches concealed the stage behind them. There was a few moments' wait, then, amid hushed silence, the king with his retinue came in. He sat in a canopied box off to one side. When he was seated, he raised his arm and the buzz of conversation in the audience began again. Presently, the page girls moved aside from the stage. The buzz of the audience was stilted. The performance, destined to end so soon in tragedy, now began. End of Part 7